It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, we talk about the Conservative leadership election. I interview the comedian Ahir Shah about race, Brexit and the Tory party again. And you ask us... Well, two things this week. First of all, how is political journalism broken? And second of all, should parties trash their own records? Stephen, do we have to talk about Brexit? Oh God, this is, it's odd. You said that and I actually felt really sad. Um, <laughs> this is actually the last time that we, well, I was like, it's the last time we have to talk about Brexit. Now I feel sad for another reason, of course. <laughs> for myself. It's, it's not the last time I will have to talk about Brexit on this podcast. Although actually, I guess we've kind of got the, it's weird, I was about to say the distraction, but is the Tory leadership race a distraction from Brexit? Is it a vital part of the Brexit process? The weird answer, of course, is it's both. Yeah, I just had a nice thought. You know, like the, the bit of the, the end of his dark materials where like Lara and Will promise they'll go and sit on the bench in the Oxford Botanical Gardens every year, and even though they're in different universes, perhaps you and I could reunite to do a podcast about Brexit every year on the anniversary of the triggering of Article 50 until we die. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, we could. Or Brexit ends, whichever's first. Whichever Does the Atlantic first. have a podcast? Or, I mean, do, do they have long American drop intros in podcast form? <laughs> Does it start with someone being like, the podcast was invented by a man called Dwight Schultz? Except, no, they would never open with the podcast, you know, because that no, would be would far be too like, much. I know what I'm reading this and this is what's going 3 on. 3pm on November 27th, a man took an envelope. Yeah, anyway, no, no, and that doesn't happen at the, the Atlantic. They write intros with that contain relevant information to the story against the best traditions of American long-form journalism. The cover story this week is about MH370 this week, this month, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Basically comes to the conclusion that it was the pilot who was incredibly depressed, signed off from air traffic control, depressurised the cabin at 40,000 feet, so everybody then just died of hypoxia quite gently, locked his co-pilot out of the thing, and then flew it for six hours before diving it into the sea. In many ways, a potent metaphor for the Tory leadership race. Um, <laughs> see, I seamlessly brought that back together and again. And complaints, circa actually, yeah, well, not to the to the new statesman. No, just well, actually, what happens? I'm not saying we should experiment, but if you were to libel someone in this podcast, yeah, well, slander them. But if you were to slander someone in this podcast, yeah, who's legally responsible? 
I don't know. I sort of feel, isn't it a bit like the Alan Partridge bit? Like, now, you're the host, I'm the guest, you failed to control me, check the small print on your contract. Like, is it not your responsibility if I'm just a free agent now? Okay, well, that's it. Let's find out. (laughs) Who do I have strong opinions on? Okay, so let's talk about the leaders' debate. So we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, The ballot, Dominic Raab, everyone's favourite junior league psychopath, has got knocked out. We're expecting, who else we expect to go out by the time people have heard this? Well, so it depends. People who uh, subscribe and re- receive it ad-free yes. will, of course, be hearing it after the penultimate ballot, at which point it is highly likely that Rory Stewart will have gone. I mean, I think the, f- the fascinating thing in terms of Conservative internal cohesion is 37 MPs, including a large number of them publicly, being willing to back the candidate of, I don't care if Boris Johnson is going to win, I want to make it damn clear that I do not approve of him or his works. Right, including um, David Gork, sensible minister of, of a number of departments, most recently justice. Yeah. And David Liddington, as we... By law, David Liddington has to be referred to as the de facto deputy PM. Yeah. Nicholas Soames, Ken Clark, quite a few kind of grandees, right? Lots of people have basically come out and gone, I know Boris Johnson's going to win, I know this will make me a pariah afterwards to say this, but still, look at that guy, we can't make him leader. Yeah, and I think kind of... In, so in an odd way, the, the thing that... There is always this thing, I think, whenever the result of a leadership election is a a foregone conclusion, then people start to just make up phenomena, right? Like the the Cooper surge, whenever it's, oh, maybe Yvette Cooper can pull it out of the bag and beat Jeremy Corbyn, which she objectively could not, right? There was, that was never actually a thing. It was just a, oh, you know, this story's got a bit boring, maybe we should change it. It's a bit like nature balls a vacuum, isn't it? It's like, we've got another six weeks of this single narrative, like, what on earth else can we possibly write? I'm really stoked for the hunt surge. Like, um, (laughs) but the thing which is interesting about Roy Stewart is if at the start of this campaign someone had said, oh, well, there will be someone who will... You know, be on the party's left who will explicitly go, look, no deal is, is a, is, you know, won't work. We have to accept and we cannot go to the country without having done Brexit. The only Brexit is this withdrawal agreement and it has to be passed through this, this parliament somehow. We'd have gone, oh, well, wow, Matt Hancock's done well for himself. In an odd way, Rory Stewart is sort of the beneficiary of the fact that the other candidates in that space failed to to hold that position mm. and then he did a much more impressive job from a rhetorical perspective and that kind of very like i'm going to speak in a very lucid and kind of calm and sort of i'm listening f- yeah faux and faux ingenue kind of way and you know he went a just... bit kind of jesus circa the loaves and the fishes there at one point didn't he? he was just walking around kind of hugging people he had the air of someone who at any point might put a white robe on do you know what i mean though yeah no, i mean i was not immune to the the rory surge and I liked the idea that someone was saying things like we're not going to be able to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement where are you guys living unicorn land but it was quite funny to watch them all on the terrible terrible BBC debate which was the worst time I've seen five men sitting on stools since I went to the Backstreet Boys reunion uh, and actually it's similarly the Backstreet Boys I did reunion? go to the Backstreet Boys reunion Stephen what of it it was at the O2. I was sitting a really long way around. Or oh, at least one of them. In Do fact, they know that you have such bad tastes at, like, you know, the home of American culture and ideas? I probably won't mention the Backstreet Boys. Did they? Did the Backstreet Boys cross the channel? They're American. They are? I thought they just sang in that voice. No, you're thinking of five. Right. Oh, right. Yes, I am thinking of five. I five with their hits such as five will make you get down, yeah. yeah. Whereas Backstreet Boys had Backstreet's back all right. Do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, no, I, I really would have sworn. I thought they would just like, you know, take that. No. I mean, I, I know that they're a different And neither are they in sync. 
who Justin Timberlake was in. Oh, no, but N- NSYNC are an American band. Yes. Yeah. As are the Backstreet Boys. Okay, wow, you learn something new every... Yeah, and one of them is called AJ. I believe one that may be called Jerry Fatone, which is spelled Jerry Fat One. And unfortunately, obviously, in the years since uh, the Backstreet Boys <laughs> have not been regularly performing to live audiences, they all had slightly succumbed to a certain amount of middle-aged spread. Anyway, what I'm saying is that was what the debate reminded me of, men sitting awkwardly on bar stools waiting for the key change. But it was kind of fascinating to watch the kind of couple of things that they did actually agree on. Like when... The fact that actually none of them really could attack Boris Johnson about not wanting to hold an early election, even though he'd said of Gordon Brown, like, you have to have a mandate, you have to go to the country, because not all of them know exactly the same as Boris Johnson does, it would be electoral suicide to go to the country now. Yet nonetheless, as I think you keep saying, they might have to do it anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, in another way, right, the, the, the crucial thing about the debate and the reason why we can now, even though, yeah, God, there's going to be so many, oh, is Hunt surging, is X surging... Oh God! Please let it end. The reason why we can actually now, yeah, from yeah, from any serious analytical perspective, we can say, yeah, this this contest is is over. You know, change the channel. Is yesterday was the moment for one of the chasing pack to take the campaign on its head and go, look, actually, I'm the electoral one. I'm the answer to win over the watching audience. And obviously, they failed to do so. Boris Johnson, by any fair yardstick did not have good night but the problem is he did come over as the alpha right i just the bits of it i watched what he was sort of bumbling away in the background just being slightly disruptive and naughty schoolboyish like which if you let them get away with that makes him look like he's the most important person there and also this thing is he didn't really need to have a good night he just needed everyone have else a, to fail yeah, to yeah. have a, a good night as well you know J- jeremy hunt I mean, basically, I think Jeremy Hunt feels like the classic example of a leadership campaign based around the idea it would happen after Brexit was over. And I think, really, he would have been much better off... Skipping this one? Yeah. Just doing the, I think it needs to be a lever to unite the party routine. Because you, it's very hard to come back from having been the candidate who had the support of most of the payroll and is not going to be able to organically crack the, uh, the support of 50 MPs. Sajid Javid had the kind of the weird frustration of his campaign, I think, is that... It started quite late. He had a very good video with his biog, but someone said to me, the problem with Sajid Javid is that he fails the Turing test. And that is kind of the problem with it, right? Is that actually what he's saying, the content of what he's saying ought to be quite inspirational and sort of Obama-esque. You know, my father came here with nothing and I've had great opportunities. Here's my adorable dog. Here's my lovely mum cooking pakora. But like, it never, ever touches you emotionally. Well, I think, yeah, the the weird thing is, is I think, and you saw this in the debate yesterday, right? That once he had had like a question about tax, which allowed him to do his kind of like, you know... Where I'm going, we don't need roads. Yeah, like, yeah, kind of like, if anything, 20% is too damn high. He kind of sort of became animated and spoke like an actual human. He had the kind of brilliant moment of essentially forcing the others into saying, yes, we will have a proper inquiry into Islamophobia in the party, just through embarrassing them into it. Right? Like, yeah, guys, of course, we're all going to do it. And it's a fascinating hypothetical is if that had been the first question would he have had a better night overall i suspect so because i feel that once he'd had the like oh here's a question about tax where i can do my thatcherite in uh, red and tooth and claw true blue thing once he'd had a question on his home territory i think he really grew into it that's the, the thing they're sort of trying to run him as an identity candidate when actually he's kind of deeply uncomfortable with that and he'd be much happier running as mr fiscal right yeah i mean i think the, the flip side of that is i think the thing that he has done, which has been really impressive, right, 
is he has had a very frank conversation with the Conservative Party about race and racism. He hasn't done... I mean, so obviously he has done the whole, you know, this is the, you know, we're, you know, one of the most functional multiracial democracies in the world. I mean, I actually think he's he's entirely correct on that. But um, he also has done the, when I tried to become a candidate, some people in this party thought I shouldn't be there. He didn't do the, the crowd-pleasing nonsense and basically almost every ethnic minority conservative at some point would go, oh, Labour thought they owned me, which I mean... Obviously, is true of the attitude of some activists in the Labour Party towards ethnic minority voters. However, the reason why it's disingenuous as hell is whenever you speak to any ethnic minority conservative privately going for selection, they will, of course, say, oh, I had loads of anxieties, or, oh, people thought that maybe I was in the wrong party, etc., etc. But that is, of course, the playbook, not just in the Conservative Party, but essentially throughout the world of an ethnic minority seeking power from a majority, is to basically go, you're great, I'm going to tell you that you're wonderful. Yeah, he hasn't hasn't done that. Yeah, he there's ha- a line in one of the Obama books where it said Obama's great skill was to make white people feel comfortable. Yeah. And then also just rinse, it, as it turned out, huge amounts of money out of them for fundraising. Like, he was an amazing fundraiser. Yeah. And the thing, so he hasn't, he hasn't done any of that stuff. And I think that is quite impressive. I do think to have my, my first Rory Stewart wine of the pod, I find it distasteful that a bunch of people who quite rightly have been complaining about how their party, i.e. Labour, has um, been rubbish and in many ways actively become a comfortable home for anti-Semitism simply because a man speaks slowly and sounds kind of reasonable were willing, are willing to give him this massive pass and he had to be guilted into it like the rest of them. What, like, on the Islamophobia yeah, like he, Yeah, like he, he, he wasn't like he was like, oh yeah, of course, Sajid. Like, it's just like this kind of I, I do find it astonishing, like, that the how comically low the bar for a certain type of Remainers is for them to deify someone. Weirdly, they'll do it to anyone other than people who actually back a Remain vote. Like, it's just like, you know, like some yeah, random... Yeah, but it, it's just ra- the narcissism of small differences, isn't it? It's like you just, you kind of go, oh, he's brilliant for a, and for a Tory, and then, but you, that's, you're just judging him by much, much lower standards than you would someone in your own... I just, caucus. But I don't even think it's in, in the standards in, in their own caucus are, are particularly high. I mean, we're talking about, like, there's this slight weirdness, right, than the, the politicians that Remainers have invested great hopes in, you know, since the referendum. Jeremy Corbyn, who, who ran not one but two Labour leadership elections on a explicit platform of being open to the idea of a leave vote and then to accepting the result of the referendum and then ran on an explicitly pro-Brexit platform in the general election. You then had those same people kind of turn their their loving eyes to Yvette Cooper, one of the few Labour MPs who still has not come out in favour of a particular Brexit end state and has not come out in favour of a second referendum. Now these same group of people are turning... Their, their loving eyes to a third politician who doesn't want a second referendum. Quite literally, if we got a list of, of every MP in Parliament and I just was sat there putting my finger up and down and you shouted out a number till you thought of the number between one and ten I was thinking about, I would have more chance of alighting on a Remainer three times in that process than it turns out a large chunk of very online FPP years have managed to do through choice. It is like this, this slight weirdness of like, Remain political activity, which will basically do anything to secure a Remain vote other than support, without hesitation or caveat, the one outlet that is pro-Remain. It's just, it's just Do you mean the Lib Dems? Me. I do just mean the Lib Dems. And the, or the SNP in Scotland. I just do find it really bizarre Clyde. that, like... 
there is a leadership election where there are people explicitly talking up the remain and the trade-offs of, of Brexit. And yet instead of people getting excited about either of them, people would rather get excited about a man speaking slowly. Like from a performance perspective, I really, I do you really rate... you not into Joe Swinson versus Ed Davey? Ed uh, Davey went into Mumsnet uh, yeah. this week. Pretty brutal. Um, yeah, I mean, I am, I am yeah, I, I think they are both very strong candidates. I do think it's quite interesting what Rory Stewart is doing, right? And the way his whole body language is essentially, you know, in the same way that in 2005, Cameron did this whole, I'm your Blair. Yeah, I'm your, uh, yeah. And he's essentially going, I'm your Corbyn. I'm straight talking. I'm honest, etc., etc. The problem I think he had yesterday is actually he's not straight talking because it feels like he can't quite in his head decide, is he running to be someone's foreign secretary, mm. which involves saying certain things to kind of give yourself a way back? Or is he running to be the candidate of change and disruption? Because, but it's also about the unity thing, right? Yeah. Which is, is so much of his message is about, I want to bring people together. And actually, the problem is you can't really bring people together and be a politician who has to take sufficiently, you know, inevitably divisive policies. So he has a bit where he's, he's, as you say, like all these Remainers kind of swooning over him. And then he says something like, but of course I would be open to bringing Nigel Farage into the talks. And you're like, okay, but that's a that's not the same thing and then today he's been talking about doing something like I know like I was gonna say hooking up with Michael Gove that sounds a lot more exciting than I think what he's proposing but this sort of making a kind of fetish out of bringing everybody together some people don't want to be brought together with Michael Gove or Nigel Farage that's that is inevitably an incredibly problematic thing to try and do well I think the thing is is I think the kind of bringing together Michael Gove and Nigel Farage again they they all make sense if your calculation is Michael Gove or Jeremy Hunt will become leader and then they will, and then I am the overwhelmingly qualified candidate to be foreign secretary, right? Mm. This is, and I think this has actually been the kind of the strategic hole that Rory Stewart has ultimately fallen down in a bit, right? Is he's half running a very effective campaign to be the foreign secretary of a conservative candidate who's not going to win. And he's half running the... uh, The gorilla smash it all up, I want to be king, come to me. yeah, Yeah, the effective campaign of someone who can go guys, we've got a huge problem with social liberals. You might not like me, but I am the button you can press to get us out of that hole. That is the astonishing thing about the whole this whole can leadership election. I mean, Krishnan Gurumurthy, I think he took the first question from somebody who was about, like, you know, how are you going to win back voters who've gone to the Brexit party and the Liberal Democrats? Mm-hmm. And yet that sort of second bit brackets just seems to be left off. It's all run as if the only problem... The only leaky flank that the Tory party has at the next election is people who are so hard Brexit that, like, they wake up and just kiss their picture of Douglas Carlswell. I mean, I think the weird thing is, is I think that is partly because of the right-wing press. Then actually, when you we speak to a, a lot of Conservative MPs, including some who are backing Boris Johnson, they are very aware of the fact that they are right. uh, fighting a, a, a multi-fronted battle. It's just that, essentially... Because, for understandable reasons, the Johnson campaign has decided its strategic interest is talking about the Brexit party. His House Journal is therefore going to talk about the the Brexit party. And it means that you end up with this kind of weirdly distorted public debate. Of course, the thing that, as I have written in my shiny Super Ray column this week, the thing that some of his uh, supporters fully understand is that actually far from being a kind of surefire winner, the Boris candidacy is a huge gamble for Johnson. Them. That is a pound in the swear box. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of against the swear box. I think. What? I've come around. I, 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 I can't I, believe you've insurrected against the swear box at this late yeah. stage. Well, I mean, I, I just kind of think that I feel like the ship has sailed. 
The ship has sailed, reached the new world, given the natives uh, syphilis, right. wiped out their culture, and is now the greatest superpower in the world. Like, yeah, we've just got to accept this. But yeah, sorry. The, the, the Johnson candidacy, the, the gamble inherent in it, is that is the electoral benefit of knocking out the Brexit party equal to, mm. ideally greater than, the cost of making the Liberal Democrats' lives a lot easier. And also the presuming the clinging hope that he's, because he is socially liberal himself, and, you know, he doesn't know how many kids he's got, and he's got a girlfriend, that's quite a Liberal Democrat. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you know think, I always think the Liberal Democrat are the kind of, like, polygamous people who have earnest Google spreadsheets with which they work out which person they're seeing that night, and they're probably quite into that sort of thing. You've been to Lib Dem Glee Club. You I know have what? been to Lib Dem Glee Club. I mean, I think the, the, the thing is, I think that is true of some Liberal Democrat activists. I'm not convinced it is true of the Conservative Lib Dem pain point, as it were. I think the thing is, I think, yeah, essentially... No, they're not putting the swing in swing voter, those people. Yeah, I think the... the so the argument some Conservatives have is, like, we just need to accept that we are a Brexit party now, and we just need to hope that at the end of that transformation, we are still in office, and to pray that we don't end up being like the Hillary Clinton, come closer to winning Texas than any Democrat for 30 years, be the first Democrat to lose Pennsylvania for 20 years, oops, you're not president. Uh, can I ask you a couple of questions to finish? Yeah. Which are, first of all, how the hell do there's any of the candidates think they're going to get the withdrawal agreement through, either in its current form or with the full house compromise, I can't believe the malt house compromise has come back again, by just taking out the backstop. Is there any inkling, have you got any inkling about what Boris Johnson would do in order to get Brexit through? I mean, that was the thing, that they all took the mick out of Dominic Raab. Actually, he, as far as I was concerned, he, by suspending Parliament, he was basically the ink and going for no deal. He was the only one who had a cast-iron way of getting it through. Like, that would have... Say what you like about the terms <laughs> of national socialism. At least it's an ideology. Ideology. Um, well, quite. But, um, but you know what I mean? Like, I just think the sort of, ah, no, my radiant personal charisma will mean will unlock this at Brussels is, is all I'm getting from any of them, really. Well, the thing that Boris Johnson has, has successfully done so far so far, and even if it, he, it unravels now, it doesn't matter because Dominic Raab is not in the race anymore. And the the moment of mag- maximum danger for him was when there was a, an exhaust for Brexit ultras. There is no exhaust, so whatever happens, those people are locked in a room which contains him and someone who is less sound in in their, their minds. No, so the, the Boris way out is kind of, you know, semi-clouded in mystery, but it's also essentially based on the argument that Parliament will ultimately not actually stop a a no-deal Brexit. These people point out, and this is actually true, right, Parliament did not stop no Brexit. By the time that MPs had finally stopped going, oh, small towns, oh, it's so difficult. (laughs) Is that your Gareth Snell impression? It could be my impression of so many Labour MPs. (laughs) Or John Mann saying that he wants to debate whether or not there are more leave voters in the Labour coalition than Remain voters. It's like, no, John, that's not that's not a debate. That's just statistics. Because like, like, Paul Sturridge has done really interesting yeah. research that shows actually more... So more Labour vote. Let me get this right. More Labour voters, even in leave seats, are Remainers, right? That yeah. Actually, just Labour's electoral coalition is dominated by Remainers. Yeah, I mean, and seeing as that coalition was not big enough or geographically dispersed enough to win power, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, John Mann's argument about what Brexit position they have is necessarily wrong. But yeah, it's just like him saying, oh, you just like, no, no, John, you, you don't get to have a panel debate about whether or not two plus two equals four. 
You know, like, it's just like, you know, we can, there are lots of things we can debate. We can debate whether or not you are displaying sufficient leadership on any political issue. We can we can debate whether or not... It was funny when you followed Ken Livingston into that revolving yeah. door that time. Yeah, the yeah but, it we, was. but we can't debate whether or not you were, you followed him into the revolving door, and we can't debate whether or not more... The Labour door voted. exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, there are, there are objective facts. So... The the argument that, that, that they essentially make is, look, by the time that Parliament had actually passed that, Theresa May had already asked for an extension. And if Parliament had been left to its own devices, they would have run out of time. You know, they, they, they would have discovered their, their will to block it. That's why I find the late. kind of Rory Stewart stands coming out in public kind of interesting, because it is the first inkling that some people might actually sack up and, and do something. Because, I mean, then all this loose talk about, you know, oh, if Boris Johnson became Prime Minister and tried to force through no, no deal Brexit, then they'd bring the government down. And you kind of go, yeah, would they, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah, would they, though? The thing is, though, right, is it's really easy to forget just how many Tory rebels there are even when the government wins nowadays, right? So to take, like, the most recent, the, the vote to take control of a day of the legislative agenda so that Parliament could, in theory, have legislated to it at the least mean that it couldn't be prorogued without its, say, its consent, which failed, of course, because of a critical mass of Labour MPs. So you had the Hoey tendency, didn't you, that voted against it yeah, versus the had... kind of dominant grieve Oliver Letwin side of the Conservatives who voted for it? Yeah, but the important thing is, right, is, is that what used to happen in those closed votes is the, the grieve people weren't enough to outnumber the ideologically committed Labour leavers, right? So, you know, you'd essentially have, you know, five Conservative Remainers, seven Labour leavers, government victory. But the resting level of a pro-European rebellion in the Conservative Party now is 10, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's already enough that it's wiped out the ideologically committed rebels on the other side. The the issue last time, of course, was, you know, a bunch of Labour MPs, because of their concerns about their small towns, having decided not to vote to leave the burning building three times, decided that they were going to vote to lock the windows and doors of the burning building as well. And this is what's called leadership. This is like Stephen's Grump Week. I really yeah. enjoy that. People that you hate, yeah. FPP people on Twitter, and those Labour, yeah, those Labour MPs. This, this is the thing is, essentially, uh, gradually, there is no part of the political spectrum which I don't loathe. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, one by, well, there are a few patches of light here and there, but mostly it's just different shades of, of irritation. The, so Except one, for the new leader of Ply Cymru. Yeah. One argument is that what you can do is you basically go, Parliament will never actually assert itself to stop no deal. Theresa May is the one who stopped no deal last time, and that dynamic will continue. That's the argument that some people around Boris Johnson make. I don't think it is true simply because I think the the, the number of... So my other half has got a theory. He loves being mentioned in this podcast, so I'm going to air his theory, which is... Wouldn't you, if you were Theresa May, a tiny bit of you be tempted on the way out of Downing Street just to revoke Article 50? She could do it. She could do it. It'd be amazing. It wouldn't be in keeping with our constitutional processes, which is the... Oh, that bothers Theresa May. But no, but the, the ECJ verdict is you essentially have to do it in keeping with your own constitutional processes. So if you're somewhere where the president has free reign over foreign policy, then you can do it. But with us, the president of the commission would not accept a letter that did not come without the letter. Whereas I think, whereas the hilarious thing is there is no reason why Parliament couldn't just go, we vote to send a letter. Sorry, the executive does not get to... What if the Queen did it? To weigh in it. Would weirdly, I guess, be constitutional, but I obviously would throw up other problems. <laughs> so, I mean, I do think one of the things that is underpriced is the hilarious possibility that Theresa May will rebel on a Brexit vote. 
you know, she's decided to break pretty much all precedent. The only other time that a sitting prime minister has participated in their process, right? So she is voting in these ballots, right? Is Thatcher, when Thatcher openly said, you should back Major, not Heseltine. Whereas Theresa May is doing this weird thing where she's decided that she doesn't want to be neutral, but she doesn't think that she should be asked, despite the fact that some would argue that if the sitting prime minister feels sufficiently strongly about the people vying to do her job, then she is willing to vote for one of them. That that feels like information we should we sh- we should be given ready access to, but you know, never mind. Um, oh, Theresa. The other way that it could pass, right, is that group of Labour MPs who I regularly whine about could also, right suddenly decide that they are going to exert themselves in the commons gareth snell has said that he he will oh yeah, he says he regrets not having voted for it before and will vote for it now so there could be a moment which is big of him to say oh i regret these options to do something i'm now going to bet quite heavily on an option i might not have wow i right. think you and gareth snell just need to get to a blank i just think car, really, car I just park think with broken really, snooker cues. i just think right like i like i i you know, there are lots of people who think that No Deal would not be a disaster, right? I think they're wrong, but they're entitled to vote the way that they believe. Gareth Snell is a man who does believe that, come the crunch, if there is a No Deal Brexit, then people will die. And he has decided, essentially, to vote in a way that maximises the possibility of that happening because... He didn't want to have a difficult conversation with his voters, having decided to vote in a way. I just think basically, ultimately, there are two things MPs can do, right, if you don't want no deal. You can vote for the deal or you can vote for any of the measures that have come before the House to prevent or delay it. And if you haven't done either of those two things, okay, God, Jed, I don't even want to know you. But at the least, just be quiet. You're like, don't intervene on Caroline Lucas to have a go at her for backing a second referendum. Don't stand up and give a self-regarding speech about how you just... Just, just, just have the decency to be quiet. Like, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to leave some extensive notes for Anoush. Anoush, do not get him started on the subject of Gareth Snell. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, right. let's, let's pick that up later. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. And I'm joined by the comedian Ahir Shah, whose show Dots is at the Edinburgh Festival from the 1st of August. Hello. Hello, Helen. I went to see your last show, Duffer, which had some politics in it, some Bohemian Rhapsody in it, Mm -hmm. uh, and quite a lot of personal stuff too about depression and things like that. How do you decide where the line is about how much of yourself you're going to put into a show as a sort of semi-political comedian, semi-personal comedian? Mm. I think that with Duffer was sort of a way of working it out for myself, right? Because I'd not really engaged with that sort of thing a great deal before. So it only became apparent to me when I finally stopped touring it a couple of months ago or at the end of April. And you sort of work out that, oh, right, there are all of these things that I have been speaking about now for about 18 months and I'm continuing to dredge up, 
which probably isn't a spectacularly good idea <laughs> on an internal level, unless it feels like I'm actually getting something out of continuing to talk about this. And so with that in mind, because in Duffer I was speaking a lot about the stories of my family and particularly my grandmother, and these are all the stories of people I love and think is valuable to sort of get out there. So I sort of don't mind keeping that going, even if it is a bit sadder than I would like to be in the long run. Was it an interesting show? Because you talk about your grandmother, who's from Gujarat, is that right? Yeah. You were kind of performing it at the time of some of the stuff being in the news about hostile environment, about immigration Mm. crackdowns. And there was a lot of that in the show. Over the course of performing it, did that change how people were receiving it because stuff was in the news? I think so, because people became more aware, as you say, like the time that the Windrush scandal and everything was around. But it was just one of those interesting things where you're sort of like reading extensive coverage in newspapers of a thing. And everyone's being like, oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened to Nan when I was five. Like, that's just that's a pretty normal thing. She got uh, deported, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, just done. No, uh, no <laughs> as you mentioned in the show, it's suboptimal. I'm interested in actually how political you feel like being at the moment, because I sometimes have to just try and not read the news for a bit because it makes me just feel pathetic and depressed but do you find it easy to mine politics at the moment for humour? Not particularly, I mean, well, certainly all that British politics does is fill me with a sense of abiding shame that my ancestors were conquered by a ruling class this shit. <laughs> and so I just have to sort of put it all to one side uh, slightly. I think like, I, I'm increasingly aware that it's almost certainly deeply unhealthy to have a magic box in your pocket that buzzes every time there's a catastrophe that you can do nothing to prevent or ameliorate. And so I'm slightly trying to get away from being constantly hooked up to that steady stream. You sent me down a weird path, which is now trying to imagine all the Tory leadership candidates as kind of colonial overseers. (laughs) And something about Dominic Raab's face just screams... A pith helmet would look <laughs> would look right on me. You know what I mean? He's got the, that look. Rob looks like he's constantly trying to concentrate in order to maintain a glamour that's been cast on him to, so that no one realises that he's actually a shark. <laughs> yeah, there are moments where the shark somehow yeah. comes through. So you were watching the Tory leadership debate on Sunday. Oh yeah, I'd love to spend a Sunday evening right. <laughs> being I mean, told why it's a great idea for my country to set itself on fire for no reason. It was quite an astonishing performance on a number of different levels. I wonder, as someone from the BME community, how you felt about Sajid Javid's effortless invocation of his background. I didn't think it was particularly surprising that he would bring it up. And Michael Gove, I think, also brought it up sort of on his behalf. He did uh, a very strange kind of, he doesn't need Donald Trump to tell him he's allowed in this yeah, country. Yeah. Like they were at sort of school together and it was like, don't you pick on my mate Saj. And then he was like, I don't know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen him before. It was like, like Gove had to do it because he kept saying all of these things that were clearly designed to be applause lines that no one oh, was applauding at. Yes. And it was like watching, well, it was partly sort of Jeb Bush, please clap situation. <laughs> and also there was a lovely video I saw ages ago of someone who'd taken out the laughter from the first like three minutes of a Simon Amstel stand-up show and it was just a sequence of really upsetting statements without the laughter and so I was looking at a go of like a combo Amstel and Bush in that situation. That's so true there was a bit when uh, Christian Grimoff was like and of course none of them have said that climate change is their top priority and they all started remonstrating them about how much they deeply cared and I think Gove literally said something like I talked about it I talked about the children and all (laughs) and it was just like it was yeah. I don't know it was like someone who kind of I don't know swallowed a bible about how to be a political also, candidate that did, that did feel quite unfair when because basically they could say absolutely anything and then you could counter with this and oh I well, see you, you don't care about the sharks one, Dominic yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said your one priority so what the hell am I supposed to do in this yeah. situation oh it was I, I thought it was extraordinary I also thought <laughs> the kind of extraordinary 
face of Dominic Raab, who was definitely my breakout star of the evening, <laughs> just... <laughs> gets a spin-off. <laughs> I would definitely give him the kind of... Let's be honest, it would be more likely to be Joey than Frasier, that spin-off series. But the way that he just looked clearly really angry about the fact that Rory Stewart probably could kill him with his thumb. <laughs> this was like a real challenge to his masculinity, that he wants, yeah. he wants to be the hardest one in yeah. that room. I'm super exit. I wanted to have been a spy, allegedly. Yeah, yeah definitely not. Exactly. Yeah, Importantly, I... certainly not. No, I mean, how would you? How would you know? But um, <laughs> how do you feel about Labour at the moment? Well, we're let's be even-handed on the podcast. Yeah, I hear. Um, I hear they're a party still. Yeah, I, I still um, broadly unaware what their position on basically everything. That's uh, the way they like it. Is. That's the um, genius. The Brexit policy is still sort of. We have a Brexit plan, but you don't know how she goes to another school. I don't know. I, I, was it Tom Watson came out yesterday saying that it needs to be? Was he saying second referendum? Or he's gently dancing his way towards saying that we need and and, and with you know and therefore and campaign for Remain. Yeah. More importantly, that's the point about the weird thing about the second referendum argument well, is you can have one all you want, but would would Labour campaign therefore to Remain and Jeremy Corbyn? Considering that, like. All right, fair enough. You've got you've got a lot of equivocation on one side, and that's you know only the beginnings of the problems with the contemporary Labour Party. Fair enough. But on the other side, you've got sort of five people and an empty podium, oh. of which four of whom and the empty one are saying like we should a hundred percent be willing to starve ourselves to death in order to stick it to the Jerry's. Yeah, like, really. I, I kind of. Maybe I, I thought it was all right comparatively. Yeah, when I just thought it was fascinating when it got to it that actually the the one takeaway soundbite from last night was believe in the bin, yeah. which is very Britain twenty nineteen. It's like we are a yeah. bin, but at least we believe in ourselves. Yeah. That's Britain now. I attended the launch event for Rory Stewart's um, campaign for the Conservative leadership. I went with a friend because we were just. So interested you went with in someone seeing... who hated you and wanted yeah. you to be happy. Go on. No, I was just like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to see a person who may well win the Tory leadership contest if the country were in any way normal anymore. And so we went out to the South Bank to watch and he did the bin thing then. And I was like, oh yeah, that's all very well and good in this room, but of never bust out the bin analogy on a wider stage because you're just calling Britain a bin. And then he straight up went for it and I've got to say I respected that. He mashed the bin joke. He did. He did fudge the delivery of the As bin As someone who has bailed out of many jokes on like panel shows where they yeah. got halfway through and couldn't quite commit, I really felt... I saw the terror in his eyes as he realised yeah. he'd used the wrong word initially for the setup and therefore couldn't use it in the pile. Well, because he was like, my wife was looking at me while I was trying to put a bin into a bin. You were like, no, no, you mean the bag into like, the Oh, yeah, workshop this, Rory. <laughs> I have a couple more questions for you, which is, uh, you studied PPS at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. Did it give you any insight into the people who run the country? Absolutely not, thank God. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, I found a Guardian interview from 2007. See, I know how to Google. Oh, yeah, when I, was a, when I was a little boy. When you were 17. They asked you if you said you wanted to make a new UK law, and you said you would like to ban cars and make everyone ride Komodo dragons instead. Yeah, I don't know. I thought, like, but this is all, like, the sorts of things that when you start doing anything obscenely early and you think that you're actually in any way good at it and then you're like oh let's well, just we have, something um, silly yeah we have a Stephen Bush my co-host notoriously once wrote a piece of Harry Potter fan fiction called Harry Potter and the War on Terror <laughs> <laughs> which is very much of the, the same era the thing is, is that era. having read Stephen's writing generally I'm sure it's frustratingly good <laughs> That has always been my my slight worry about Harry Potter and the War on Terror. (laughs) Um, It's like, oh God, it turns out that what Stephen's written here has informed my opinions not only about Harry Potter, but also the War on Terror. I really didn't think that that was going to happen. That's a really new insight into it, yeah. (laughs) What would be your new law now? 
my new law now would be to hold a second referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. Right, okay, but people keep saying this to me, and I just think, do you think that Remain would win? Because when people say that, what I take is the end of that sentence is, and the, with the conclusion that we would no longer leave the EU. Yeah, handy pit. <laughs> yeah. But do you not think in some ways we would just vote to leave it? I mean, people yeah. literally... The Tory members are queuing up to vote for a man who didn't even appear last night. Well, the thing is, is that so during the last referendum, I only had British citizenship and so couldn't leave in the advent of this country willfully sinking itself. Right. Whereas now, with my sweet, sweet dual nationality... What's your dual nationality with? As in India, baby. <laughs> This is so unfair. I really, you know, you talk about your ancestors. Which like, is a country that's definitely not doing as well. Like, before people start writing in and being like, oh, well, you know how in India it's like too hot. It's, yeah. Whatever. It's very hot. It and also, hot. Modi I'm, I'm is a bit. Yeah. <laughs> if you think our politicians are a bit sketchy, then at least yeah. they're not inciting Hindu extremists. violence Can against you, people yeah. who are eating beef. Yeah. So. I thought Hindu extremism is when you're too non-violent and it becomes actively problematic. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, th- I feel the same about you, your ancestors as you do about getting conquered, but I feel the same about mine and their total inability to leave Britain at any point during the last <laughs> several hundred years, meaning there is no way out for me. No, mm. ir- no vague Irish person lurking anywhere <laughs> in that background. The very boring thing, I think, from my perspective is, like, I, I feel like internally I kind of con- contain quite an unfashionable degree of patriotism and, like, really, really like this place. And it is my place and the place that I'm born and that my family are and everything. So I, I want things to be going considerably better uh, than they are. And it's always quite odd that uh, taking that position is the one that gets you a sort of branded the traitor who doesn't really give a shit about the goings on although I'm sure that there are other reasons why people might think that of me that I couldn't possibly comment on. I love Britain so much that I want it not to go through an economic and social catastrophe it's a kind of unfashionable position yes, true, would you have been invited to the state banquet? (laughs) Probably I mean if if they said come to the state banquet and just do us five minutes after the yeah. spoken I would you that, said yes I would have been slightly worried when they asked for my allergy information in advance that they would ensure whatever I was eating was prepared with shellfish uh, I'm actually allergic to racists so <laughs> is that going to be an issue here at all give us the hard sell for dots why should people go and see it People should go and see it because I think that over the last fortnight I have actually worked out what it's supposed to be about and I think it's going to be funny and good. It's sort of about the necessity, utility and absence of certainty, I think. It might not be about that, which I gather when discussing that's something meta. being uncertainty is an intriguing proposition. Were there many jokes in it? Oh, God, that's so passe, Helen. Right, okay. that's a, that's a, what's the need for that? Like, no jokes have got me this far. That's a, <laughs> right, fair it should enough. Be, it should be starting now. Well, if you like your stand-up comedy unwritten and humorless, <laughs> please visit Ahirshah's. Importantly, I've written it. It's funny. It's going through a lot of edits at the moment, sure. But, you know. <laughs> Dots is at the Edinburgh Festival. Thank you, Ahirshah. Cheers, Helen. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Yeah, this is actually a real one that someone, a real person, asked me on Twitter this morning, which is something like, is it perhaps a bad idea for a party to trash its own record? It came about because there was some... The Blessed Toblerone did a kind of one of those videos with like several buttons undone in his lovely Tony Blair Institute for Global, whatever it is, saying... 
finally having a pop at you sense of a long nursed pop at Jer- Jeremy Corbyn for saying inequality has been ignored for decades no one has talked about it pointing out that New Labour did really talk about about it they had incredibly redistributive tax measures and he had some graphs that's how angry he was he had graphs and then Momentum put out a strange tweet about the fact that actually Labour had caused the banking crisis which led to austerity and then a load of other people rode in and said hang on a minute you have to the Labour line has always been austerity was a political choice don't so now say Tony Blair was so evil that of course George Osborne had to cut social care budgets and from councils so anyway, deep internet beef on one level, but also kind of interesting in the light of the Tory leadership debates in which there have been a lot of people saying things like, I mean, it's terrible how little money has got into social care. And you're like, uh, <coughs> guys, <clears throat> who's been, you know, like people openly talking about things that are the cabinet responsibility of other people in the debating room with them that have nonetheless, they are just like as if who can say why we haven't had enough money, you know, like junior doctors are angry, like who knows, it is a mystery. Why is knife crime going up? Who has cut these budgets? So, I mean, I also think we, we should do a, a, we'll do a, a second question for the, for the last time, but I have always essentially taken the view, I remember during the 2010 leadership election, there was this whole argument about whether or not they needed to defend the record oh. or, or not. I, I basically take the view that when you, you leave office, the record has, has been trashed. By definition, a, a, a government that has lost power, the voters have reached a, a fixed view on it. I think one of the... Yeah, I'm not un- sure I agree with that, though, because it's like the Labour sort of ran out of steam. That doesn't mean that everything it did was bad, right? That actually what it means is... I Also, I... I know this is an unfashionable thing to admit. I just sort of think people don't actually necessarily vote against a government. They just get bored of it after a while. Like You have to be exceptionally bad. There is a maximum length, I think, for any democratically elected government. And New Labour pretty much butted up against it, right? I mean, so there's, there's actually a, an anecdote that Tony Blair once told me. Um, <laughs> that, right. uh, Strong. I've decided to be really insufferable this week. Yeah. Um, but um, Steve, he said. Steve. Yeah. So, you know, on the campaign trail, 2005, and basically, you know, well, what, have, what have you done for us? And he went, oh, you know, he did the kind of like, you know, crime down, you know, short start, et cetera, et cetera. And she went, yeah, OK, no, I know you did that. What are you going to do next? And I just think this thing is just like elections are always about the future, not the past. Leadership, not drift. And I kind of sort of think that, I mean, what I thought was interesting about this beef is actually the the speech as delivered was a lot less Blair critical than many other things Corbyn has said. It felt like the video was in response to the kind of comments of lots of his outriders about why the speech was a good idea. Mm. But actually the speech was, I mean, essentially the speech was very similar to some of the things that Vince Cable said in his two years out of Parliament about, you know, yeah, look, the thing about social mobility is, you know, no one is really into it in practice because no one is actually into downward social mobility. Uh, For thick, rich people, yeah. yeah. You've just got to have a, 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 a more kind of thoroughgoing idea of social justice, right? And, yeah, and some bits of the speech were actually fairly pro their last period in government. But I kind of take the view that, like, a 10-year-old when Labour left office is now old enough to vote. Assuming this parliament goes its full length, no, actually, I, I, even I can't. I can't sustain <laughs> that argument. I was going to a ten-year-old. I was the parliament is going to last till October. So you know, like there, there will be but people, be who, people were 10 who are voting for the first time in the next election. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, less than that. Yeah. I mean, there'll be people who are eighteen who will like have just been born after the. Like, don't even remember nine eleven. Ha- weren't even born when nine eleven happened. Yeah, like, if I- it happened in October. I think one of the things that Ed 
um, got well. I would say got right, but obviously he then allowed himself to not do it, so he did not get it right. You, you do not get points for trying. But one of the things that Ed M was right about and Ed B was wrong about was this idea that you you could there was any value in litigating the spending decisions taken in. I mean, this thing is the last Labour government is is you know ten year old old enough to vote. Oh six seven spending round, which is actually what this argument is really about, is is literally old enough than it has like done its GCSEs. You know, so like, there is no there is no well, okay, but you know what I mean. Like, it's a prodigy, but, but yeah, yeah but technically there, that but could you be know, true. There is just no point. And I think one of the things that uh, that that helped Corbyn was when he did his sort of oh, you know, that we we need to apologise for the financial crisis and for not regulating enough. Now. I think that worked for them for two reasons. It worked for them because it gave them credibility on their their left flank and among, you know, economists about actually what the problem with, with austerity was and wasn't. But for a lot of people, they just heard it as an apology for the crash, which they kind of felt Labour needed to do because they were in charge when it happened. Like, it's it's a bit like, you know, like, David Cameron didn't win in 2010 going, but look, everyone else wanted to be in the ERM too. I just think it's a conceding me wrong. Yeah, I think the where parties fall into a hole is where they end up in this thing where they've semi-conceded, but they haven't. But they have a foundational myth or an interim myth, which means that they can't. It's like they can't sort of actually deliver the apology, right? So you have two examples of that at the moment. On the Conservative side, of course, you have this weird thing, right, where you have a chunk of the Conservative Party believes that Brexit is a disaster, Corbyn's success is a disaster. Uh, and yet the financial and spending decisions taken in the run-up to those two disastrous events were broadly okay. But seeing as from their perspective, 80% of the country has made a decision that they don't like at one point, and 30% of the country has made a decision they don't like twice, quite clearly something has gone wrong. And then on the Labour side, of course, you have this, as well as their Remain problem, they have a problem that they are losing environmentally-minded voters to the Liberal Democrats. They know that they, yeah, they you, they kind of will articulate, oh, we know that our policy on this is weak source. But their actual response is they will go, but we've declared a climate emergency and also we're, we're, we're still going to build Heathrow. And they can't ever process it. But I think it's sort of fair enough to just like, yeah, the record, yesterday's gone. I don't know why I decided to do a rumours song there. but Yeah, get over it. Yeah. Get over it, TB. I guess there's, there's just a feeling of, hurt among people who worked for either the Blair or Brown government or were activists during that time who kind of kept the faith after the war that they felt they did a lot of good frankly I just think there's a lot of people feel underappreciated for the hard work they did and also is that thing which has come up over and over again as I've been writing this book about feminism about the fact that success wipes out the struggle that preceded it right that actually you kind of go well of course you'd have a minimum wage like <laughs> that seems like an easy thing to get everyone to agree to but it was enormously fraught at the time. Like, Actually, one of the massive problems of politics is very rarely does anyone get any credit for anything ever. What's your second question? So the second question is obviously you are, you know, leaving. Now yes. the end is near, so we've reached the final curtain. My watch has ended, yeah. You bowed out with your last cover story on staff, which is also, weirdly enough, a question. What's wrong with me? Slash political journalism. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You, Stephen Bush, in particular. <laughs> Yeah, I, I gave a lecture in uh, the Reuters Institute in Oxford and I talked to some very good lobby journalists beforehand and I talked to, I've you know, been talking to you also, now for years. I bracket you in with the 
lobby journalists I who were good. Say, I feel that like you, there was a <laughs> a good lobby journalist gag that and, you just went and you. Yeah. No, but we, yeah, we've been talking about this stuff for ages, right? And this is some of this is in the piece about the way that we talked about covering the 2017 election in a way that didn't assume the result in advance. And actually, we've been trying to do that again with the Conservative leadership election, right? That you you genuinely don't know in the moment whether or not Rory Mania is going to be a flash in the pan or a madly catching fire thing that's going to go on. So you actually have to treat it kind of yeah, neutrally yeah. and report it on its merits. Yeah, like despite everything I've just said, I will still go to God knows how many Conservative hustings because just because I think then Boris is inevitable, sorry, Johnson is ah, inevitable, Yeah, doesn't mean that he is. But also doesn't mean that you won't find interesting things out along the way that just gets swept out of the narrative. One of the journalists I talked to it to put it like this, that political journalism is a constant war of facts against narrative. And you definitely saw that. And it's really hard. Like, I'm not, none of this is about the fact that there aren't really good journalists trying to make sense of this stuff. But how do you know when you get a poll result whether or not it's a fluke or whether or not the person hasn't, you know, the pollster hasn't adjusted their turnout filters right or whether or not it really tells you something. And I remember that piece you wrote during the 2017 election about how Corbyn was surging in the polls and actually just didn't really kind of make a a dent. It added to a sort of, covering elections is really tough because you begin to get sort of whispers and scents, but trying to hold them up against any kind of objective standard to work out what's going on is almost impossible i did and i can now say this in the pieces in print and uh, it's too late for my cowardice to be immortalized in print i did of course chicken out with that piece and change the headline from unnoticed and unreported jeremy corbyn is surging in the polls to there is one place labor's campaign is strong radio after about like uh, six hours of people being like you're an apologist he's gonna get 80 seats so yeah, I mean, I actually am the world's biggest coward that's really funny yeah. i think it i think it might have been changed back again I think, yeah, there, there was definitely like a lot of kind of me like writing things and then being like, but maybe we could put a, a more base covering headline on it. Yeah. And other people, thankfully, with a better understanding of the NS's bottom line going, no, 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 you really do have to go. But stick your neck out. And, and, and your greatest, the thing that kind of made you as a political journalist, right, as a, as a the Stephen Bush phenomenon that we know and love today, is calling the 2015 Labour election, just going, here's this thing that this 100 and... 100 to 1 candidate that no one's talking about actually when you talk to constituency Labour parties they're really into him and like you can build up a good body of evidence I think Diane has spoken about the fact that you know actually her candidacy was surprisingly popular with the membership in 2010 right it was the trade union vote and the MPs that were just nowhere not loving it at all like there are signs that you could you can see and pick up but it's about trying to treat political journalism more scientifically was really hard and also really hard particularly for the new statesman because as we mentioned in the first segment the the consensus view is so dominated by print press which then gets onto paper reviews because they're very cheap telly and also the bbc on its bulletins will follow up breaking stories because it doesn't break a lot of news itself in political terms but that is a very you know that is dominated by big right-wing papers you know the telegraph has got a huge amount of resources the mail's got a huge amount of resources the express is now much diminished but still has quite a lot of readers sunday times is big and puts a lot of investment into politics and on the other side the mirror is left-wing but is not quite as i would say as polemical on behalf of jeremy corbyn as telegraph has been on behalf of boris johnson like you just cannot make that comparison at all so what you do is end up with a kind of groupthink where it becomes very hard to say, I actually think that people really like Jeremy Corbyn because the, the the narrative is Jeremy Corbyn is a joke. No one's ever going to vote for this guy. Yeah. Because I think the other problem is like this kind of, which yeah, is a problem of human psychology as well, is 
it, it once uh, an idea takes hold, people are really reluctant to let go of it. I really noticed this with the local elections this year, where having gone to bed at about seven o'clock, when I woke up at about 7.30 the next night, and you had a bunch of people who were still covering it from the night before, who were essentially still covering the 11 o'clock early counts. The fascinating example with that, right, is you had the BBC basically kind of going, oh, both parties have had, like, a bad night. They had both had a disappointing night, but only one of the parties has had a properly apocalyptic one. So Labour had lost, what, 100 or so seats? seats. Yeah, and then the Conservatives had lost hundreds. They'd lost, like, 1,000. Like, it literally was, like, a mid-90s Conservative performance. And they had also done sufficiently badly than any questions about... Yeah, it does feel like sometimes it's just, like, ultimately, like... The key word in Jeremy Corbyn enters government unenthusiastically is not unenthusiastically. Well, hang on. I think he'd probably be quite enthusiastic. He scrapes over the line. Yeah, it does, just, what matters is who's over the line. Like, yeah, this, this, yeah. this result showing Labour, could, Labour, Labour, you know, set to scrape into office with 26% of the vote or some comically low vote share. Well, that that really only matters in terms of their ability to deliver their policy agenda. It doesn't really matter at all from a health of the Conservative Party perspective. Now, the weird thing is, is although I think the broadcasters hugely missed how important that element of the story was, you can bet that no Conservative MP missed that part of the story. That is one of the reasons why so many of them have just buried their objections to Boris Johnson. Because now I I think there's an open question about whether or not they've correctly picked the solution to the problem but they definitely but they have like... identified an electability problem and they happen to think that boris johnson is the solution um, yeah but it is also very difficult i mean i've made these criticisms but the 2017 election they came off the back of the local elections which were really bloody for labor i think labor got what 27 28 of the vote yeah. and then went up to 40 in the general election so what happened was people kind of say campaigns don't matter well this one clearly did or they say the thing is that non-voters don't vote well they don't normally but in the EU referendum they did you know actually lots of the stuff you know the youth quake I think now is a really difficult thing to talk about in the context of that 2017 election but as you say it's one of those those little like those kind of little memes kind of winkle their way into consciousness Boris Johnson is electable is one of them when I saw the figures in that column of yours saying that his what his approval ratings are minus 50 in London and minus 30 outside yeah you kind of go at that point right they everybody's rode in behind this like our great election winning Boris Johnson they might now be set for the banter election of October in which he loses his seat. He's only got a majority of 5,000, is it, yeah, in Oxbridge? It's also because one of the conclusions... I mean, so the, the unnerving thing about this column, I actually managed to somehow... This managed to freak me out twice. When you emailed me the first draft, it had failures of journalism in the subject header, also all in lowercase, which, in my mind, like, lowercase is like that I am so angry with you that I cannot be bothered to punctuate properly. Stephen, come uh, to my office now! Um... But the thing I've kind of thought about after reading and after the 2017 election is actually one of the ways to massively improve your analysis is just to use the word if more, right? So in terms of the gamble that is being made with Boris Johnson, right? You know, the essential gamble is if the number of Brexit votes equals or surpasses the number of Lib Dem lost votes. If Lib Dems are still... Yeah, so Labour 2017 voters are sufficiently angry with the Labour Party to not vote for the Labour Party, even faced with a Boris Johnson premiership then the Boris Johnson gamble works. It does fix their problem. And those are... Dominoes that could all fall. Yeah. That's how I felt about the 538 um, model of of predicting the 2016 election, because they ended up on election night with about 66% chance of Hillary Clinton winning and 33% chance of Donald Trump winning. And actually, that's how... Like, if you phrase it in that sense, I mean, most people, including me, often don't really understand 
probability, but that was about how likely it was because he had to win a whole load of unlikely states in unlikely ways by small margins. Yeah. And it turns out he did. And yeah, that's a that's maybe an interesting way of kind of pricing it in about saying how me- how likely an outcome is to happen, which isn't to say that black swan events don't happen, right? Yeah. Unlikely things happen all the time. We we have no we we don't know. Yeah, because we are essentially in this situation where both big parties are semi betting the farm that they can they can win back one chunk of their vote without hugely alienating the other chunk. The Conservatives look certain to make a very bold gamble, and it may be that in a couple of weeks' time, all of this stuff about how oh Labour has to back a second referendum looks very silly, because it might just be that a bunch of social liberals look at Boris Johnson and go oh God, I suppose I'm going to vote Labour then. Right, that could happen. Equally. It could turn out that the Remain vote is so split that Boris Johnson wins 365 seats. And it's also very dependent on what does Boris Johnson say in the crucial first weeks of his office when he has a chance to make statements that actually genuinely connect with people, right? What is his Downing Street speech if he wins? Does he say something about, like, I think we should, you know, hug Huskies and I'm so proud to live in a country which is accepting of, uh, you know, LGBT people? Or does he say, the thing is, we've got to go over and tell Jerry that he's got to damn well accept a bit of British steel? Yeah. Like, and that massively will affect, it will set the tone, the whole tone of his, his premiership from there, which is a factor that neither you nor I can predict because both there are, those two Boris Johnsons coexist. At the same time, well, um, people can read that my yeah my swan song uh, in the magazine. Although I'll be coming back to do occasional theatre reviews, I hope, and look after the pod without me, Stephen. I really want this bit to be over a, a sad violin score, but this has been my final New Statesman podcast. I would like to thank all of the brilliant people who've been on it with us over the years and to Caroline Crampton, our long-term producer, and Leskovitz, who's helped us plug a lot of things in because Stephen and I are dullards who don't understand technology and everyone involved in it. And most of all to you, Stephen, I will miss you. Maybe just come around my house occasionally and tell me about Labour Party internal politics for 30 to 35 well, I can, minutes. I could file like a paragraph long run-on sentence every couple of weeks if you start to get nostalgic. Yeah, like. <laughs> please, please turn this into four sentences. No, Stephen, I don't have to anymore. Anyway, you've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast. Thank you and good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.